Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel back from my time in the health and safety protocols and joining my always fantastic host, Dan Favalli. Uh, I'm excited to, to be back talking with you, Dan, about some hoops. And I'm even more excited because I always enjoy the mailbag episodes so much. And that's what we have in store for everyone this time around. How are you doing? I am spectacular. Glad to hear that you're feeling better. I hope you're full on stamina return soon. It's exciting to hear your voice. I feel like I'm finally playing video games online though, because you have the headset and I feel like you <laughs> sound right now as if we are playing a video game together, which is fitting because That's we have a Discord the channel. The effect that we're going for. We have a Discord channel, which is popular among gamers. And so it's almost like Adam knew that we needed to plug the Discord channel. So he's wearing his headset. You should join the Hardware Knox Discord channel. The link is in the podcast bio and we're already having lots of fun in there. And for the time being, you get priority when it comes to having your mailbag questions answered. If that's not a bonus, what the hell is? Yeah, no, I, I am using the gaming headset right now. Uh, it is is most commonly used for my my digital version of Gloomhaven sessions on Steam. If you haven't tried that out, you should. It's awesome. I've played the real board game version and the even probably even nerdier online version. But my uh, my headphones that I typically use with the microphone broke, so. This is the best I've got until I'm able to make a run to a store and get some actual headphones for the microphone. Well, hopefully that is the biggest inconvenience that you've had um, lately. And it's not because you had COVID. It's, yeah, it's not. You're just going through it at the moment. Is everything okay though? Everything is great. Everything is great. As as you said, just dealing with the the post-COVID fatigue, it's, uh, it's not fun to be winded, like going up and down the stairs, but all things considered, I'm pretty lucky and grateful to be vaccinated and healthy now. I was vaccinated before, to be clear, but the healthy part is recent. You're super immune now, vaxxed, boost, boosted, and had... Got it at all. Uh, you're free got to it all. lick everyone's mailbox again. I know that was a hobby of yours back in the day. Only please on no Wednesday one, nights. Please no one go start licking mailboxes. <laughs> let's, let's belly flop into this mailbag. Before we do jump into the Discord, we had two questions that were attacking. Uh, attacking. I'm just going to infer tone, the NBA math account, because you didn't, you skipped over the Wolves in Team TPA last week. And so um, Benny and Ben asked, why did you skip the Wolves team in TPA last week? Yeah, because my my COVID riddled self (laughs) was attempting to put all of those team updates out one morning. And I have to use a separate computer for it so that we have Tableau access and I could take all the pictures and everything. So I scheduled them all out and then realized after like seven people commented on it that I had scheduled the Timberwolves TPA tweet without a picture, which obviously isn't particularly valuable. So I deleted that and was not able to do it again because I would have had to get the other computer and I was in the middle of work and I just forgot to get back to it. And we get so many responses on those days to the various tweets that I did not see those. So I apologize to Ben and Benny and it won't happen again. But the real answer is just that I have a, a personal vendetta against the Timberwolves, much like I do every other team. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. We, have, we, are, we conspire against every single team in the league. We hate them. We hate your team too much. We love everyone else's team too much. That's how, that's how this works. That's the best takes, the best takes are always the ones where you get accused of being a hater and a super fan because you know that you found the right balance. Right. It's the same thing with fake trades. If both fan bases maintain that they're giving up too much, it's, it's a really good trade idea. That's my gauge for stuff. 
Let's get into some deeper mailbag questions on Discord. T Bloom one one seven asks, "Which would you bet on? Andrew Wiggins is the last All Star starter off the draft board, or any other result?" I mean, as I responded on the Discord channel. So again, like you should get on the Discord channel. Adam is like uh, answering mailbag questions. Just think about that. You can peer into the <laughs> if you join Discord. You know, I, I essentially answered this one with my my response question, which is that I think it's a better question to ask if the league got rid of the requirement that starters be drafted before reserves, would Andrew Wiggins be drafted before anyone else? So the one scenario in which I could see him not being the last starter or last whatever off the board is Steph Curry's team just trying to appease Steph Curry who wants Andrew Wiggins on it. And so it's not a matter of, Steph being a captain, which Steph is not a captain, right? Is who's and captain? if he tried to shoot his shot, he'd probably miss right now anyway. Man, now you're attacking first. You're dumping all over the world. <laughs> now you're attacking Steph Curry. But yeah, that is the that is the only thing that that's the only scenario in which it's like, oh, you, you yeah. picked Steph Curry and you, like Steph Curry campaigned behind the scenes for Andrew Wiggins, or you're trying to, you know, like a you're trying to prove you're a real hooper and that Andrew Wiggins is actually much better than people presume. And so you're going to draft him onto your team. But if he is anything other than the last all-star starter selected, no, that, that draft did not unfold based on talent or fit or, or any coherent logic. And like the Wiggins discourse has been so reductive on Twitter, just as is the case with just about everything where like, it doesn't need to be so extreme. Like Wiggins is probably not the worst all-star starter selection of all time. There, there have been guys like Yao Ming or Allen Iverson who were voted in purely as legacy selections. Yao Ming was, was selected as an all-star starter during a season in which he played five games. Now, Antonio Davis was an all-star starter one year. And ultimately, people don't really remember who was a starter and who was a reserve so much as who was an all-star. Does Andrew Wiggins deserve to be an all-star starter? No, probably not. Maybe it wouldn't have happened without the K-pop influence or whatever the hell happened with the Golden State Warriors stuff. Probably not. (laughs) But like the idea of Andrew Wiggins being an all-star this year is not entirely unfathomable. Should he be? Probably not. Is he on the cusp of it? I think you can make a case. Like in the in the RPR MVP predictor we use at NBA Math, he's checking in around like 32 in the league right now. So, you know, if the All-Stars are the 24 best players, he's, he's on the cusp of getting to that level. And it is ultimately a cool reward for a guy who has completely reinvented himself as a player who can maximize his talents within a role player's role. He has played phenomenal defense for the Warriors. He started to take the right shots. He's become a lethal three-point marksman. Is he a featured player? Not really. Is he an offensive initiator? Not really. Is he a star? Not really. But he's been damn good in his role, and it's cool to see him get the recognition for that growth. So I think you can simultaneously be happy that he is getting that recognition for progressing the right way in his career, for getting vaccinated and having this awesome growth as a player because clearly those are not just correlated but one is causation for the other and you can also recognize that this shouldn't have happened if we're solely looking at the starter selections i do push back against the notion that if it wasn't going to be andrew wiggins who else did he beat out aside from draymond green and there's carl anthony towns i would have taken i like if we want to go a little bit deeper cut i would have taken aaron gordon over andrew wiggins this year based off the workload that he's had to carry in denver 
Um, I think you could also make DeAndre Ayton is another big one. So there were front court options in the West to me that made a lot more sense than Andrew. Wiggins. Probably pick Kristaps Porzingis over him. Still, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay hidden that one. We'll move right along. Then we've reached the Kristaps Porzingis <laughs> portion of the All Star discussion. Uh, Sweet Lou on Discord asks, "Who's most likely a Cav by the deadline? Eric Gordon, Karis Levert, Dennis Schroeder, or none?" I think. Let's I'm gonna say none, just because the none oh. is always the most likely answer. That's unless you're talking about Kendrick Nunn, which which this person is not. Well, the reason I was gonna say none is just because I don't think the Cavs are gonna make some big swing at the deadline. To do that, you're probably giving up a first round pick, or you're giving up Colin Sexton, maybe, which I, I find hard to believe given his his injured status and his potential import to the long-term core. I, I just don't think that if the Cavaliers are making a move, it's going to be of a, a large enough caliber to involve any of those players. They might they might take a swing at adding a, a backup guard who can fill in some of the minutes that R- Ricky Rubio vacated with the torn ACL. They might look to get another defensive presence to spell Jared Allen a little bit down the stretch. I just don't think that we're going to see anything substantial enough to, to talk about Eric Gordon or, or any player of that caliber. And I would agree with that. My answer is Dennis Schroeder though, if we're not going to allow us to say none, just because there are things you could do. He fits into the injury exception they got for Ricky Rubio that would vault them into the tax. So they'd probably make another move, but you could also get Dennis Schroeder by moving it like two minimum contracts or something that keeps you out of the tax while also bringing back Schroeder. He seems like the most likely one. My favorite one for them would probably be Karis Levert. Just looking at, I do think he could play with Garland and or Sexton. Maybe not, probably not all at the same time, but he's played by and large over the past two months really well and gives you another guy who can dribble and create. And I would argue he's an even better, uh, even better passer than a Colin Sexton. And so you're getting an upgrade over there, even if you go ahead and play Sexton this summer. Eric Gordon's also intriguing because he gives you some defensive juice and, and more rim pressure than any of those guys. But it's like you said, unless you're attaching stuff to Ricky Rubio, I'm just not. The Cavs are really good. This has found money this season, though, to me. We underestimated them. I get it. Um, but they're, they're like not quite as far along as, as the Grizzlies to me. And so like, if you, and it's also, it's found money that doesn't expire. You know, sometimes there are seasons where it's, it's such found money, but you can see the expiration date that you're more tempted to make that all in move. I don't think the Cavaliers fall into that realm because the pieces are young and are going to continue growing. This is a sustainable found money situation. Yes. I do get the urgency to do something with your assets. If you're not high on what Sexton's going to look like on his next contract. Rubio is expiring. So if you're not going to keep him, it might behoove you to use that money to try and bring back larger money. I just don't think they're at the point where the Grizzlies have all these extra first round picks. The Cavs do not, they have their own. And basically, so if you're moving a first round pick for any of these guys, I don't know that it's nudging you enough short or long-term to, to spin it. Uh, Maybe if it's like super protected and then turns into two seconds immediately, or maybe it only costs you, the Rubio salary plus seconds to get Eric Gordon because he's owed so much money next year or the Karis LeVert price point drop drops. But we've seen the Rockets want a first for Eric Gordon and the Pacers want two first for Karis LeVert. So I think you can bet on saying they won't make any move of, of significance of the three players mentioned though. I think that Schroeder is the overwhelmingly likely uh, acquisition just because of the feasibility behind it. I'm with you there. The, this is related, so I will skip to a Twitter one really quickly. Truth be told, ask which franchises are interested in an Eric Gordon trade with the Rockets? I could probably name 29 of them, roughly. I was going to say the same thing. Like, all of them? I, I really love the idea 
of him basically anywhere. I mean, he's he's become such a a, a well-rounded player who provides that floor spacing, who can put pressure on the rim, who has some defensive juice, that it's very easy to make an argument for him in just about every situation. I think someone like the Clippers makes the most sense because they're able to maximize every single piece of his profile. But then what are they sending back? Are they really willing to, to meet that price point during a season that they might not have peak Paul George? They're not going to have Kawhi Leonard. They're, they're, you can, I think you can reasonably argue him everywhere. Yeah, and it would not be for a rebuilding team, and the Clippers can't trade a first-round pick, but if you could do something with Eric Bledsoe in enough seconds to make it work, he would be great there. I also don't know if they're going to be trying. Like with Paul George and Kawhi out, I don't know what their MO is going to be. My favorite teams for him, if we were to peg the ones that I think, think should be the most aggressive going after him at the deadline – I wouldn't mind Cleveland thinking about it just because of all that he does. I love him in Phoenix. I think it's probably my favorite destination for him. I think he would be huge for Dallas. Um, so those would be teams that I would circle that should really be looking at him. You could also, though, like the Lakers, if you're talking about like the the special package where they have to give up a 2027 pick, I don't know that Eric Gordon's necessarily the player you want to do it for. I would do it for Eric Gordon if I were the Lakers just looking at at where they are. And so those are the teams that immediately spring to mind. But I could talk myself into – you know, I would love him on the Bucks. They don't just don't have the assets to move him. Maybe Memphis, if you're just talking about expiring money and one of those lower end first that they have, that could be a fun one. Uh, there are just a lot of different options to choose from. But I think Phoenix or Dallas, I think those two teams would be the most aggressive going after him because I believe he would elevate them the most when we're talking about postseason bound squads. I might throw the Atlanta Hawks into that same ballpark. Because you're a homer. I got it. Because I'm a homer. No, but I mean, for real, because he does provide that wing defense, because he does provide that secondary creation that they are ultimately still lacking because the offseason pieces have not gelled. Yeah. Um, you want to know that would make sense? It's just I can't figure out the trade that would make it work. The Celtics could really use an Eric Gordon. The Celtics could use basically in everything right now, though. They're like, they're okay on bigs, I think. Robert Williams, Al Horford there, that's rock solid. You don't need another big. Sure. Uh, let's go to Christopher from discord asks everyone talks about their predictions for what a trade for what trade a team is going to do to improve their season. What sort of horrible trade would you like to see a team you don't like make that would completely 86 their season? This is a pure out of spite sort of scenario there. Look, I'm going to tell you the one, if you didn't think of one yet, so I'll, I'll just go first here. I want to see the Knicks trade for Russell Westbrook and get off of Julius Randall and Evan Fournier. That is just the, like, I propose this. Whose season are you 86ing there? Uh, I'm saving the Lakers season. I thought we were ruining someone's season. No, yeah, we're ruining the Knicks's. Trade Julius Randle, Fournier. What is there to ruin? (laughs) Like, don't you, to ruin something, doesn't it have to be a good thing? You're ruining Tom Thibodeau's ability to not play (laughs) Obi Kaplan, to ignore playing Cam Reddish by trading Kemba Walker, Fournier, and Julius Randle for Russell Westbrook. And Brian Toporek, who actually asked the question, but he came on a podcast last week, said that the Lakers probably need to send the Knicks a pick in that. And I'm like, you send them a pick. That's fine. You want to send them a swap or that 2027 first? That's fine. I think it helps the Lakers, but then it also kind of just torpedoes the Knicks season to the point that this was the team that was feel good coming out as the biggest surprise of last year. Everyone thought was at least probably a rock solid playoff team this year, just admitting that they're going absolutely nowhere. 
I feel like you're fundamentally misunderstanding the premise of the question because the Knicks, as we record, are 23 and 27 and have shown no signs of upward potential. But they've shown no signs of that they're willing to rebuild either. So I'm 86-ing. Fair. And I don't know that I actually Fair. any team. So if, it's like I'm in the same boat. I, I think like my best answer to this question is any move involving James Harden. That would be the best one. The Nets just trading Kyrie Irving, trading James Harden, and admitting like this whole thing was just fragile beyond reason. So we're just gonna have to. Yeah. But there... yeah, I mean, like it's funny. It's funny when I, maybe this is gonna spiral into a, a bigger picture discussion. But I think when you work in any sort of basketball media, you know, you've you've been writing for so long. I wrote for eight years and I've been on the editing side, but still maintain these Twitter accounts and everything and still spend time discussing things on basketball Twitter to some extent. I think anytime you partake in any of that, that you get the accusations that you hate teams. And it's like the exact opposite. I feel like all the time I spent writing and all the time I spent on League Pass watching every team, you find little things to appreciate about every team. You find one hidden gem who you enjoy watching. You find a set that you enjoy seeing trotted out there on a regular basis. There are things that we like watching about just about every team, even the ones that are truly atrocious. We can find enjoyment watching them because you're seeing the development of young players. So this idea that we hate teams is kind of a, a, a weird nonsensical concept to me because even if it comes across that way sometimes like I, I never wrote anything just for the sake of being provocative and I know you don't either like if we're insulting a team it's because we feel it's justified if we're insulting a player it's because we feel it's justified to me like I don't know that there's a team that I really hate yeah, it would be objectively hysterical if the Nets were just like, this is a disaster, we're stripping it down. The other one I thought of, and I don't hate them and I wouldn't do this, but if Ryan Smith, you know, the proprietor of the Utah Jazz, is just too scared by the tax bill, looking at them being 2-11 in their last game. Uh, last oh, no. Game, losing <laughs> oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. And they just like... I know where this is going. And they're, they're, they just break up Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, actualizing all the national media's or fans' concerns about those two not liking each other, despite this insistence, I think that everything's fine. They're going to be okay. And I don't subscribe to the model that they're going to have to get rid of Donovan Mitchell. I'm just saying, or do I, I'm just saying it would be hysterical. If I do believe a lot of people think they might have to maybe look at moving Rudy Gobert. If they flame out in the playoffs this season, it would be objectively wild. If they just decided, you know what? We're fourth in the West. Now we've just lost 11 of our last 13. We don't have Joe Ingles. We're probably going to, he's going to leave in free agency. We'll even play next year, given that he tours ACL and he's going to have to wait a few weeks to have surgery. But you have a question on this later, so won't have to into it. But that would be the other team where it's, it kind of comes out of nowhere and they're just 86-ing their entire season. So Brooklyn or, or Utah, the other one would be, and I'll criticize the Bucks, the people in charge of the Bucks for this, if they just decided, you know what, we have all this title equity from last year, we're going to slash our tax bill and we're not even going to try and acquire like a Brook Lopez proxy since he might not play again this season. And we're going to look at moving Chris Middleton or Drew Holiday just to try and get cheaper. Um, <laughs> but that would be like any of these decisions by the Nets, the Bucks, or the Jazz would just be blasphemous to do that. Let me make that clear. But Milwaukee does just, not bring back P.J. Tucker, who's having a spectacular season in Miami. I'm just taking your lack of engagement on my I don't hate any team thing as a, a tacit admission that you do, and you're just not sharing it. So I hate I hate the Knicks. 
they are just like <laughs> I, the, I I despise the Knicks. I legitimately sure. despise the Knicks. Not actually, but also genuinely. That was a um, diabolical question. I think is the best way to say that. Jankster asks top five candidates for the buyout market and why should they all go to the Nets? So I made my list of what I think the five best players who could get bought out are. I don't have Brooklyn as the best destination for any of them, not to ruin Jake's Jakester's uh, vibes here. I will say Thaddeus Young made the list, and I think Phoenix is the best landing spot for him, even though they've kind of figured out the Biombo, uh, the big man spot with Biombo and McGee. But I think the Nets would be a close second or maybe tied for first there. Uh, let's go through my other four and see if you agree. I have Gary Harris, who's been playing a lot better of late. Uh, he just makes twenty plus million dollars, so I don't think he's going to get moved. I have the Nuggets as actually his best fit. I can see it. They could absolutely use that, given all the the perimeter injuries that they suffered. They they need that that secondary tertiary shooting scoring presence. I will say, if we want to bring this back to the Nets, if they're not going to have Joe Harris back for the rest of this season. A Gary Harris signing would make a lot of sense. I just don't know if they can guarantee him enough playing time to to make that work. And by the way, I was looking at like the Lakers. Uh, the Lakers too, I think, makes sense there. Yeah, but they are just so inconsistent with their rotations, and he's on the tinier. And just, do you want to tether any part of your career to Russell Westbrook's team right now? Absolutely not. There you go. The and I, by the way, I wasn't including like minimum guys. If Paul Millsap doesn't get traded, he gets waived. Right. He doesn't get bought out. Goran Dragic is the obvious one. Is he going anywhere else other than Dallas? That's exactly what I was going to say. The, like the Clippers would make sense if they're trying to win still, but I don't know if they're like going to be invested in doing anything other than cutting their tax bill. Dallas uh, is such an obvious front runner for that one. I think this exercise gets interesting though after those three names. I don't think there are like these obvious buyout candidates. You could hit us on Twitter or Discord, whatever, if you have any suggestions. But the final two that I have, Jeremy Lamb. In Indiana, he's like sort of playing right now, but what the fuck is Indiana doing? And when they're at full strength, I don't think they actually want to play him and he's a free agent anyway. He would be, we're talking about the Cavs not giving up like assets for anyone. Instead of training for Karis LeVert or Dennis Schroeder, maybe you just go out and get Jeremy Lamb because he's someone who could dribble. Sure. As you said, we're, we're kind of scraping at the bottom of the barrel on these ones now. Well, I actually didn't mind that one. I actually thought that was a pretty clever suggestion. Um, I don't know if you have another. Like, I just, I, I don't. I, I feel like it's just after those first three names, it, it does feel so unlikely. And we've said it before on some previous episodes that this year's buyout market just doesn't really feel like it's going to be that significant because with the the advent of the play-in tournament last year and given the widespread parody, parody and uncertainty that has proliferated this season, there just aren't that many teams that are going to be willing to pay to get rid of someone. Yes. And my final name, it was between Thomas Sadoransky and Torian Prince and Prince has played better in recent weeks and shot the ball better than I went with him. It also leads me to believe that, Hey, if Minnesota doesn't trade him on his expiring contract, maybe they don't buy him out, but he would be, if he wants more playing time, I had Chicago and Milwaukee would be fantastic fits for him. If he gets bought out. I prefer Milwaukee there, but I just I don't see Minnesota being willing to make a move like that right now while it's on the rise. Well, it's not going to even if there's even if there's discontent there, you you don't have an incentive to move him. Well, so if you're if you're looking down the line, there are two scenarios in which it makes sense: is maybe you make a move and he just becomes superfluous on your roster, or maybe you're trading him as part of another move to a different team who then just buys him out because they're not in it anyway. And so I think he's a he's a real buyout candidate if the Timberwolves do anything heading into the deadline. 
Uh, Hoop Informatics asked, said, you can take the idea of this question and run with it however you want. Teams now, thought experiment, teams now consist solely of clones of one player. There's a team of five Nikola Jokic's, a team of five Steph Curry's, five LeBron's, five Kevin Durant's, and five Ish Schmidt's. What, which team would win the championship? What team would be overrated? What would five Steph Curry's versus five Nikola Jokic's look like? You can expand and take this question wherever you want. Yeah, I spent way too much time thinking about this today. Um, I think it really depends on how you frame this. Are we operating in a league where in, the injury sliders are turned off? Do we actually have a 12-man roster of these players or a 15-man roster so that if one gets hurt, another can step in? Because I think that changes the answer a lot. If we are operating in a world without injuries or with an unlimited number of these players as replacements, I think the answer is Kawhi Leonard, because when you do this exercise, you need both size and the ability to fill every role. So while it's, it's, it's incredibly appealing to have five Steph Curry's on the court together, because what the fuck is a defense going to do? You're going to be in big trouble on the other end. You're not going to get many rebounds. You're not going to be able to play against any teams with bigger players, especially skilled, bigger players. Conversely, Jokic, for all that he brings to the table, for all the skill with which he operates on the offensive end and for the underratedness of his defense, unless you're looking at the TPA metric, which oversells his defense, he is ultimately a lumbering, plodding big man. He is not going to be nearly quick enough to keep up with the guard-heavy teams in transition or in the half-court sets. You have to find a happy medium, which to me means you're looking at the true two-way wings, you're looking at LeBron James, you're looking at Jimmy Butler, you're looking at Kawhi Leonard, you're looking at Giannis Antetokounmpo. Giannis was my first instinct, but ultimately, even if he is impervious to every kind of defense these days, no matter how much you pack the paint against him, he can still find a way to get to the basket and score. You do need some semblance of floor spacing if you're asking this one player team to operate for a full season and a full playoff run and win a championship. So to me, as long as the injuries are turned off, the answer has to be Kawhi because he can defend. He has the size to match up against bigger players. He has the quickness to stay with the smaller players. He can shoot. He's going to space out whatever defense you find. He can pass. He can operate in isolation. To me, he's the most well-rounded player for this exercise. LeBron is probably number two and is my choice if injuries are a thing. I was about to ask you why why Kawhi over LeBron, though, if you're turning injuries off. The defense at this stage of his career. Because LeBron can turn on the defensive chops for small stretches, but if we're asking him to be the only player, we've seen in, in the last five years or so how frequently he can get caught napping off the ball. And even if he's playing great on-ball defense, four of him have to play off-ball defense too. What about That is a sentence I never expected to say. What about five KDs, though? Do you not trust the defense against smaller players? Because we've seen him do the dance against wings and yeah. players before. Yeah, I think his I think his defense tends to get sold a little short, but it's still not quite on the same level as, as Kawhi, not even close to the same level. So he's going to be a scoring nightmare. I just don't know that I want that style of play. Who would be your choice if you're limited to non-stars? Someone who doesn't rank as, doesn't have an all-star case this season. Wow. That is one that I did not prepare for. And I almost like need to look through a list of names. Do you have anyone who immediately comes to mind? 
Uh, Frank Nielkina, one, would definitely be Yeah, up we there. knew that was coming. Kenrich Williams. Like, if we were talking role player, role player. I'm not even joking. Role it's player, like, role player. So, but, I, I mean, if you wanted to go, like, the just as an example of, like, the – he's going to be an all-star this year, so that's not fair. But, like, Fred Van Fleet, I'm not even thinking, like, that high. That was the first name that came to mind, and I thought that was a little much. I'm not calling him a role player. The fact that he would be, like, existing outside of this is sort of the reason why, uh, whatever. But I'm, I'm like – of the non-stars, I didn't really give that much. That that was one that just sprang to me, which would be like Harrison Barnes. That's a pretty good one. That's like super plug and play and super scalable. That might be the answer. I'm trying to think if there's a better one that comes to mind. I don't think there is. I got I got nobody on that one. Like Mikhail Bridges, maybe. Mikhail Bridges would be a good one. Would Nicholas Batum be a good one? Might be a good one. He probably would be. Um you know, I, I think that's the kind of player that we're looking at, looking at, though, a guy who can score in volume, who can defend. It, you ultimately want the jack of all trades, master of none. If we're looking at that, if, if we're looking for that kind of thing. Yeah, I'd be Scotty you. Barnes. Ooh, I'd be a little bit worried about the shooting, but for sure, Scotty Barnes would OG. He defends. Everybody. I don't think there's enough. I don't know that there's enough offensive juice there if it's five OGs. One OG, sure. <laughs> Five of them. That's also just too many capital letters. What about, just because we've seen the flashes, Aaron Gordon or Jeremy Grant could deserve some consideration here. I'd probably still go with Harrison Barnes, but... Yeah, I think I'm still sticking with Harrison Barnes there. The, is he too high-end for this Miles Bridges? I think he's become too high-end. Gordon Hayward, too high-end? Too high-end. I'm just gonna use one since going. we're just this is completely arbitrary at this point. Like we have no defined ranking parameters whatsoever. All of my QE instincts are just yelling at me at the moment. Okay, last one. And just and you had to have watched the heat a good amount this season to understand PJ Tucker passing. They're using him as like a post passer, making decisions from standstills. He's not he's running. You want PJ Tucker to dribble the basketball? I don't have a problem with it. I would just, I would think about it. If, okay, if it was PJ Tucker versus Robert Covington, I'd, I'd pick PJ Tucker. You know why? You know why I, I remember this question? Because, so I, when, when we saw this come through the Discord, and I told you this before we started recording, it's like, I've thought about this before. Was, did we do this on a previous episode? Did I write an article about it back in the day at Bleacher Report? No, it's because in the summer of 2019, we did the NBA math all-time one-on-one tournament where we had literally every player in NBA history in brackets and asked for the fan votes and went through that whole exercise. And I thought about doing a follow-up one that asked this exact question. So I wanted to approach this from a historical perspective and see who we would take all time in this same conversation. Would you take five Michael Jordans? Would you take five LeBron James? Would you take five Wilt Chamberlains, five Magic Johnsons? So on and so forth. I think if we're just talking, that's like a discussion for another problem. If we're talking the peak of each of their careers, I'm going with LeBron James. I think so too. Jordan would think so too. Johnson would be the other answers, I think. I don't know if I would want Magic that high in this conversation just because he was never a go-to scorer. He could score. He was an adept scorer. But without the the floor spacing ability, I just wonder if you can mitigate some of the passing impact. 
that was an interesting thought exercise. I didn't anticipate spending this much time on it, but PJ Tucker was the answer for both of us. That's final, followed by Frank Nielakina, in case anyone was looking for for a recap. I can, let's Before we move on, though, I, I want to touch on the other aspects of that question. Who would be the most overrated team? You know, I am probably going to go with five Nikola Jokic's. That was my answer, too. That's like he needs other people who aren't Nikola Jokic yeah. around him to maximize the best Nikola Jokic possible. It's, I'm not saying he can't create his own shot, but like other Nikola Jokic's can't like dart around off the ball like an Aaron Gordon or Will Barton or like Gary Harris when he was there. You know who would be an underrated choice if we're looking at this in like the last 10 years would be Marcus Saul. Maybe. I think there's just enough anticipatory foot speed that it could work. When there are four other Marcus Alls around you, though, I'm not sure how much that anticipatory speed actually matters. I just don't know how anyone's going to score. Against another, another underrated, another underrated one here. If you want to win games two to nothing, can you imagine five Matisse Tybels on the court? I guess. I mean, I, Matisse Tybels like really would, defense, but who is? Is he like is he holding up against like bigs? No, maybe. But like you still have if you're playing against a team of bigs, you still have to throw an entry pass, and that's a dangerous proposition. I feel like he could win games like thirty to twenty five just solely on transition runout opportunities. You know, I might. I'm going to tell you right now that five Matisse Thibels aren't averaging twenty five points a game. It's not happening. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> uh, let's move on to this question from Brian. As which team could have a Grizzlies? slash Hawks-esque rise next season, and why is it the Magic? Yeah, I, I think it is the Magic. I, I don't have anyone who I'm even willing to put in that same ballpark. Are, why, why aren't the Pelicans in that ballpark? Because I just don't really trust Zion, and beyond him and Josh Giddy, I don't know how – or the Pelicans, you said, not the, not the Thunder. I'm just mixing up teams now. Um, I just – I don't know that there's the same depth of talent because I, I – there might not be that singular superstar in Orlando, but there are so many different pieces who I can see developing into like a fringe all-star. It's the same conversation we had before the season started where I said that I think the Spurs have the fewest future all-stars on their team, which sold DeJounte Murray way too short, but we directly compared them to the magic where especially with the emergence of, of Mo Bamba now, you can go up and down this roster and find so many intriguing talents who they don't have to acquire externally. So Jalen Suggs has started to show flashes more recently. Cole Anthony has shown those flashes throughout the season. Markel Fultz is still going to emerge and give something at some point. Franz Wagner has been incredible. Chuma Okiki has come on strong as of late. And we haven't even mentioned Jonathan Isaac who is as close to a foundational piece as you're going to find among all of these candidates. So I just think the, the depth of potential answers to this question in Orlando is stronger than what you're going to find anywhere else. So if you look at someone like the Thunder with Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Josh Giddy, and then you know a bunch of dart throws, you can get excited about that, but I don't know that you can to the same extent. And then in New Orleans, like, yes, 
there is Zion Williamson. Yes, there's Herbert Jones. How many other pieces are you getting excited about there? Uh, let's start. So what I think is also key here is the Pelicans in relation to the Hawks of last year and the Grizzlies of this year is you still need the, like the semi-established or the rising tentpole player. Orlando yes. does not have that unless Jalen Suggs is going kaboom or Jonathan Isaac does something on offense and stays healthy in ways that we have not seen. So you have Zion, you have Brendan Ingram, you have Jonas Valanciunas, you have Herb Jones, you have Josh Hart, you have um, Devontae Graham, you have Jose Alvarado has given great defensive minutes. This so, season. You have, I'm just going to keep going. Jackson Hayes has shown you flashes. Look at what Willie Hernan Gomez has done for you. What happens if Willie Green decides, hey, if we're talking about trying to make the upside play, there's the picks that they'll have this year. And there's also, what if they actually decide to play Trey Murphy? Because they still sort of need the player who's exactly like him. And I think that, you know, they're, they've gotten better this season while giving minutes to Sato and Gary Clark. And those aren't players to me who should be getting minutes if they're catering towards the bigger picture. And I'll just circle back to, I think you can argue that as of next season, if you're putting them up against the Magic specifically, they have the two players with the highest ceilings of next yeah, season. Yeah, so I, I think that New Orleans is more likely to be better next season than Orlando. That's just not how I interpret this question. Because if I think about the Hawks and the Grizzlies, they did have that one singular foundational building block, but then they had 800 more players who went kaboom to some extent. You know, they had guys who got that much better and were able to become that much better of a supporting cast. And all of those names that you mentioned in New Orleans, how many of those have like eight more rungs on the ladder to ascent? I don't know that we're getting a gigantic leap out of Brandon Ingram or Josh Hart at this point. I know that we're not getting that out of Jonas Valanciunas relative to the level at which he's playing right now. I think with Orlando, you can go up and down that roster and find guys who, if they all make that leap simultaneously, you go from the bottom to contending for the top. And that's how I interpret this question. It's not a, it's not a likelihood of being the better team. It's the magnitude of improvement potential. So you're basing it off of because the magic players are worse. That's yeah. the answer. Yes, that. yes. Because they, they have a lower, I don't think so, because they have a lower baseline and a higher ceiling. So if, if everything goes according to plan, which team is better, Orlando or New Orleans? To me, the answer is Orlando. How realistic is that? I don't know. But it is at least somewhat realistic that they get enough out of so many crucial young players that they make a gigantic leap. I think that the 80% outcome here is that New Orleans is better than Orlando. I'm curious about that 20% that's left. And I think that if we look at it that way, there's just so much more room for growth because we're not talking about just making a leap into the bottom of the Western Conference playoff picture or the bottom of the Eastern Conference playoff picture. We're talking about a Hawks team that went from the bottom of the lottery competing for top picks in the draft to an Eastern Conference finals appearance. We're talking about a Memphis team that was not in the playoffs and is now being viewed as a potential contender in the West. So New Orleans, I think if you're if you're building out like the curve of their of their most likely outcomes, the mean is going to be set higher, but that distribution that distribution is going to be a lot narrower. And Orlando's is a lot wider and has more top end outcomes. It might be wider because I think it has more lower end outcomes. I don't see how it has a top it does. end outcome. It does. I don't see how it has more top end outcomes when you're looking at like first of all, the Grizzlies were a playoff team in each of the past two years. So it's not like they were just disappearing from relevance and you're talking about like the Hawks having John Collins and Trey Young like sort of your two incumbent cornerstones the Grizzlies having a healthy 
um, Jaron Jackson Jr. plus Ja. I don't think – I'm not looking at the Grizzlies roster. Desmond Bain made the leap. No one else on the team has just made like this gargantuan leap. Aside, like if you want to include Jaron Jackson Jr. John Morant, fine, but that's where the Zion Williams stuff comes into play. There is not anyone on Orlando's roster next season who is going to sniff the transcendence of a healthy Zion Williamson. There's or a Trey Young when he was with the Hawks or a sure. John Morant. Given what no, I, I don't think you can make a one to one comparison here, regardless, just because every organization is different. I'm just, I don't see the path to them having more top end outcomes when you don't have a player. You do need that tentpole or someone with the path to become that tentpole star during a season like this. Z- like Zion Williamson has a chance to be, if he's healthy, one of the five best players in the NBA. Your team sure. by extension. Sure, but what well. are the chances that he's actually healthy enough to, to achieve that outcome? Why, but why would you ascribe that more likely to Orlando when what's the, what are the odds that Jonathan Isaac or Markel Fultz are healthy? I think, I, I think that at this point, even if Isaac has had a, a number of major injuries, they still don't give me the sense that he's like super injury prone or unmotivated. That seems really unfair to Zion because Jonathan Isaac is about to like not play basketball for two years. And you can say like, they're worried about Zion's conditioning, but he also had injuries that the Pelicans organization chose to hide. Like there's, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's the perception though, because he's had the recurring injuries, the recurring out of shape issues, the reports about falling asleep in meetings, the reports about wanting out the ballooning weight issues. Like it's just, there are so many things that are pointing towards an unlikelihood of him returning to that level we want him to be at. Whereas Isaac has had to deal with two major injuries that suck and have kept him out for a really long time, but we haven't heard any of those stories. We also just haven't seen him on the floor. Like we've seen Zion. We also haven't seen him on the floor. I just, that's like, I'm actually just surprised that that would be your logic there because I would even argue who on the magic next season, are you going to give a 75% chance or better being better, being a more valuable, better player than Brandon Ingram. And I think you can, Jonathan I think you Isaac, can make it. I'm going to dump all over your Zion Williamson takes right now. There's just, <laughs> I haven't seen him play basketball in forever. So just assume he's going to be at a fringe all-star level for someone who is still, I don't want to say underdeveloped, but very limited offensively. And the other thing is like, they just, I don't know. Like they're, they're deep. When you look at their young players, it's, but they're not blue. It's more of an egalitarian feel than the singular star carrying them all the way to the top. Because no, I don't, I don't think that there's anyone who's going to get in that like all NBA conversation. I do think that there are a lot of guys who are going to be top end starters or could be top end starters and are going to be. So to, to me, it's just a different roster construction that could promote a similar type of leap. I, the only way I just see it is if you're just assuming the team has to be working from a lower baseline. So they have more room for growth. I, I really don't understand how I, I just, to me personally, I don't see a pathway to Orlando having more top end outcomes or even a higher top. Like I don't see either, or I just don't see Orlando's case for it as early as next season. But I guess disagreements make podcasts go around. So. Absolutely. That. Every once in a while we find one. We have two questions about the jazz from Carrigan asks, what did the Jazz do after the Joe Ingles ACL injury? And then from other friend of the podcast, Lazarus Jackson asked, is Utah stuck? I assume he is referring to, like many others are referring to, the Jazz are 2-11 and as we record this over their last 13 games, during which time they are, 20, they are 20th in points scored per possession and 25th in points allowed per possession. I will note 
that they have missed Rudy Gay for a chunk of that time. But I do think it's fair to just wonder what there. There are so many layers to this because it's Joe Ingles was one of your. Pro, I don't want to view it through this, but he was one of your primary trade chips as an expiring contract. Is it more likely they get traded? Less likely he gets traded. He was also really important to your backup playmaking pecking order because you don't have one really. There is Conley and Mitchell, and then there was Ingles, and now there's Conley and Mitchell. And who's the third best playmaker on this team? Is it if it's Jordan Clarkson, you have a problem. It's probably Jordan Clarkson. No, I, I, Trent Forrest. <laughs> I, I think the answer is that they're a little stuck here. I'm not as worried about the recent slide just because it's coincided with, as you mentioned, Rudy Gay being out. It's coincided with Rudy Gobert being out of the lineup sometimes and you know, having to, to reintegrate pieces. And it just feels like we haven't really gotten to see the full strength Utah Jazz in a while, which we know is so good. But the issue is we're not going to get to see it because Joe Ingles, even in a bit of a down season for him, his defense hasn't been quite as impactful. He's struggled a little bit more with his shot. He's had to take on a smaller role, but he's still so vital to what this team does. So I, I, I don't really know what the path forward is here because you don't really have the trade ammunition to go out and replace him. You just don't. So to me, like the most likely path is really hoping for some quick development from the young guys. I mean, if you can get more out of Davion Mitchell, if you can, or if you can get more out of um, Jared Butler, for example, then you, you have a chance to, to take a, to take somewhat of a step to mitigate some of this, this loss, but I don't really see how it's going to be solved externally. The yeah, there, I actually don't see how it's going to be solved internally. Mostly because I don't think it's going to be solved now because it feels like I don't now, either. Now you need too many things. They're not like what does Jared Butler provide you? I just don't think they're ever going to give him a chance in the regular season, at least this year. And so it's more likely you go to outside the organization. What does him plus Jordan Clarkson now? I guess at this point get you? Does that get you into the? If it gets you into the Josh Richardson discussion, that definitely helps you. But then you're still light on playmaking. Uh, if, if you can still use Ingles and seconds to get Robert Covington, that certainly is going to help your defense, but you're still going to be light on playmaking. Uh, is there like a mega trade where you're getting like Schroeder and Josh Richardson from Boston? You're not, at this point, I don't think you could get Marcus Smart because I do think unless the Boston really loves Clarkson, I think Ingles would have been important to that deal as an actual player for Boston. I don't think it would have just been as mm. inspiring salary. So they need a Josh Richardson type player, but they also need to address backup point guard. Now, I think there are people that would argue that they want to see, and I've seen them argue or listen to them argue that they want someone who's going to give them some help rim protection as well. And so all of a sudden you're looking at a jazz team that feels like it needs so much. I think some of those needs can be addressed in tandem. Like a Robert Covington, I think would, would enable, would, would empower your help defense behind Rudy Gobert. And then also just give you more defensive juice on the perimeter in general. Um, Josh Richardson really probably only solves one thing, and that's like defensive mobility. And he can he's hitting threes this season, but he, he you really can't trust him to play make for you. Even if you tried to go out and get a Dennis Schroeder, like that's really only solving your backup point guard issue. And playing him, and if you're not giving up Jordan Clarkson as part of that deal, like what are you doing there? Uh, I don't think da- Maxi Klee was playing too well, and I don't think Dallas would help out Utah anyway. But something that I had given thought to is like a Jordan Clarkson for Maxi Kleba and Reggie Bullock, like take on that money of Bullock, who has not been playing so well in Dallas, had some moments lately, but like that's not a team that's going to help Utah. So you're also in this situation where you have even more finite options and someone in the West is probably not helping you. 
I do wonder if like, because of the Ingles injury, does someone like Karis Levert make sense for them? Because now you need that playmaking element. Or Eric Gordon. If you can somehow find a way to acquire him, like he does check more of the boxes that we're looking to check than any of these, uh, than any of these other players. Yeah. I think the deal would have to be because I, I still wouldn't give up. I think you can withstand pretty much trading anyone, but Mitchell and Gobert yeah. and Conley would be my third one, but I still wouldn't trade Boyan Bogdanovich. Just someone his size who shoots as well as he does. And the show he can do in the playoffs. I think if you could do like Eric Gordon and then it's for Clarkson slash Ingles' contract. That, that's just what it has to be at this point, unless you're going to yep. forever step out of your way to Gordon. And then stuff, like, are you giving up a 2026 first for Eric Gordon in that scenario? I don't I wouldn't. think like, so. But is Jared Butler in seconds going to be enough in that scenario? I'd probably also doubt that. But yeah, in Eric Gordon or a Karis LeVert, feel like players that could solve, I don't want to say a multitude, but more than one issue for the Jazz. And I think Robert Covington could as well but I do think they're in this situation where they might have like three discernible holes despite being so deep and despite still having to steal your phrasing from before, they have a, a championship top end outcome. Like that is remaining intact. It just, and I don't think you alluded to this too. Joe Ingles was not good for most of this season. And so I don't, it, the idea of him is what you're losing more than him in practice, but it is opening more of another weakness for you because all of a sudden your third best playmaker, as we just said, is, it's Jordan Clarkson or Trent Forrest, which is just not a good place. I think the best case scenario for Utah here is hoping that the topsy-turvy nature of this season keeps rearing its ugly head up through the trade deadline. Because if you have so many teams that are in contention, not just for play-in spots, but for like home court advantage in the first round, for real playoff spots that don't require that play-in tournament, maybe you have so many organizations reticent to make moves because they don't feel like they have to, that Jared Butler and, and a, a pair of second round picks actually gets it done for Eric Gordon because no one is offering more. And because of what he's owed next season, that might help them. And because of what he's, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I think that's what you're hoping for, is that somehow the market diminishes the price for these players who are actual impact players enough that you can get in on the sweepstakes without ever really being in on a sweepstakes. Yeah, because like a Harrison Barnes or Jeremy Grant outcome, I just don't see. You would have no. to trade more distant first and swaps than you should be for those players. You know, it, if you can, if you can parlay Boyan Bogdanovich into something like that, yeah, you hate to lose him. You hate to lose that size, that shooting ability, everything he brings. But if you can turn him into a do everything player like Jeremy Grant, if you can turn him into three rotation players then you might need to think about doing that because you have so many cracks to fill. Like ultimately you have to consider breaking up the core to some extent. If by doing it, you can weaken yourself in that one area to strengthen yourself in a whole bunch of different areas. So now I'm going to have three follow-up questions for you. I only had, I only had one. And now because of you talking, I have three. Would you do Bojan Bogdanovic for Josh Richardson and Dennis Schroeder? No. For the, I don't think I'd do it either. Um, I also would not do, I don't think Harrison Barnes is enough of an upgrade over Boyan Bardanovich. Like if you were to give him up in a Jeremy Grant trade somehow, I get it because Grant's defensive ceiling is so much higher than Barnes's. Yep. Um, and his offensive ceiling is lower, but like, I think he would just do more of what you Now, if you could turn him into five Harrison Barnes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other two questions are how, what is the, what, if they have to pick one, 
what is the biggest priority of the three that we talked about? I think it's got to be the wing defense. I thought I would agree, but I almost feel like it needs to be the tertiary playmaking, which speaks to how little I trust Jordan Clark so, is a shot maker and creator for himself. Fine. But like Daniel House Jr. hasn't been bad for them. And so to me, it almost feels like they need someone else who can like table set the most. So here's my reasoning though. Like when you get to a playoff situation, because ultimately like this is just about the postseason for Utah at this point, rotations consolidate and you're going to play Donovan Mitchell 40 minutes a game. You're going to play Mike Conley 38 minutes a game. You aren't going to do that with Rudy Gobert because the defensive intensity that he brings isn't fully scalable to that level. And it just puts too much pressure on him. So I, I think that you have to do something that alleviates that burden a little bit. That's fair. And the final question would be scenario. Utah gets bounced in the first round of the playoffs. What are the chances that both Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell are still on this team next season? More unlikely than likely. What are you going to say? I think it's more unlikely than it is likely. So if I give you the over under of 50%, you're going to take the under. I think I'm taking the under there. And I, it, it, it kills me too, because I love that pairing. From a pure basketball standpoint, I love the two of them together. And it's why I can't stop myself from picking the Jazz to win series and championships each of the last few years. And it hasn't turned out well, but that's how it goes when you make playoff predictions because a lot has to go right. And a lot is already going wrong for this Jazz team in a way that is going to prevent those expectations from existing this season. But failure after failure adds up and ultimately winning is the only panacea and they're they're probably not going to be winning and if as you're stipulating a first round exit actually happens then there's going to be too much pressure to do something um yeah yeah you you have grown fond of picking the jazz to win series and by the way i don't think joe angles's absence is the it is part of the impetus for this discussion but this was a conversation it's like, it's the, it's the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back yeah just because like now you need because you would have needed playmaking if you were trading joe ingles but now it's like whether or not you trade joe ingles you need extra playmaking let's get to a few more questions here the nba chicken asked the west standing seem to have somewhat settled do you see much changing with who is in the top six and playing you could almost say the same about the east and so the West right now, Phoenix, Golden State, Memphis, Utah, Denver, Dallas are your six playoff teams. Let's start there. Would you predict anyone to fall out slash join no. that way? Not I really. Think, I think I'm with you. There's, I'm just not going to fall into the temptation for the Lakers. There's I, also a three-and-a-half game gap between six and seven right now, which is fairly substantial at this point of the season. So you're either counting on the Clippers, who just don't have their top-end players available, or the Timberwolves, who, as fun as they've been recently – that's still a big climb and a big leap for a young team to make. I don't trust the Lakers. The, the trailblazers might as well throw in the towel here. And beyond that, we can stop. Right. And I think two of the teams and the four of the teams in the play-in territory right now, the Clippers and the Blazers, I think you can argue are going to end up being worse as the season goes on. Yeah. Just missing talent. The Lakers, no, they're just too far behind. And then if the Timberwolves do something, perhaps, but I'm going to go with you and say, you, you might even be able to lock in the order. I think maybe Memphis, Utah has some jockeying left, but Utah is like quietly now three games back in the loss column of Memphis. So uh, the order might be set. I was going to say for the play-in, 
I'm not sold on the Blazers staying there. And I could see the Spurs or the Pelicans. I'm out on the Kings. It's just they could they could make a trade, not make a trade, blow it up, make a buy, trade for Ben Simmons. I don't fucking care. San Antonio, and if New Orleans does get Zion back at any point, like they've been scrappy enough over the past month or so to make you think like, okay, is Dame coming back for Portland? They lost not little for the season. Yeah. has been playing better. So is Rocco, but are they going to make a selling trade? I think if we're ranking the likelihood for teams finishing in that 10 spot, I might go Spurs, Pelicans, Kings, Blazers. Spurs, Pelicans, Kings, Blazers. I'll probably put the Kings below the Blazers and I'm going to put the Pelicans above the Spurs just because, well, I guess it doesn't matter because they don't play Thaddeus Young anyway, but I'm still going to put the Pelicans with the Spurs. I'm feeling, feeling reckless. If I'll look at the East really quickly. The six teams right now, Chicago, Miami, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Brooklyn. Is anybody else leaving, entering that fold? I could see Cleveland dropping out of it. I, I still get the sense that Cleveland is like a little bit of a paper tiger here where I, I buy so many of the pieces, but it also feels like what we've seen to this point is everything going right aside from the Colin Sexton injury. Like you're getting star level production out of Kevin Love and, and the Rubio injury. Uh, Garland has been unbelievable. Allen has been unbelievable. And they haven't gone through those dips that you typically see when players ascend to that level and are tasked with carrying so much responsibility. So I could see like a little bit of a late season malaise dropping them to seven or eight. But who is going to take over that spot? Because I don't know how much more in-season upside the Hornets have. I think the Raptors or the Celtics or the Hawks are the most likely ones there. The Hawks in particular are finally looking like they're playing fun basketball, like things are clicking. But they're also five and a half games back of Cleveland right now. And I don't know if that's just too much of a gap to close. I would frame it this way in the East. And look, if you're not going to pick Cleveland, you could say if you want, those are going to be the six, fine. If you're not going to pick Cleveland, you're picking Chicago, Miami, Joel Embiid's team, Giannis's team, or the Nets. Yeah, like, no. you're not, it's I not, can't right do that. Now, the Nets are the closest to falling out of it. Uh, I think I might actually go with Toronto as the team with the best chance of leaping in. I'm just so higher on their upside. What I will say about the East, I don't think this order is set. I do think the 10 teams that we're going to see yes. in the play-in slash playoffs are set. Um, but... I'm probably going to go, I think Cleveland does finish sixth out of those top six teams, but does finish in the top six. And then I would probably go Atlanta, Toronto, Boston, Charlotte. Charlotte's defense has been a lot better of late, but I'm just curious whether it. This is not, it's not an insult to Charlotte. I just think that the other three teams, Toronto, Boston, and Atlanta clearly have more juice to squeeze here. I might like Charlotte better than Boston because I really think there's a chance Boston sells. I'm not talking Marcus Smart or Jalen Brown, but ducking the tax, maybe getting rid of Schroeder and their offense as flimsy as it is. But I, I mostly agree with the order. And I think more likely than not, the six teams that are there, order will change, sure. But I think those are probably the six teams that are going to stay. I think so too. I'm just not as confident in that as I am in the West. I think, uh, yeah, I'm probably... I don't know if I'm, I might be just equally confident at this point. No, I, just, I can't see it. I can't see it in the West. Like Atlanta or Toronto could just go on a bender. Like, right. are, are you ruling out Atlanta winning 10 games in a row and suddenly they're fourth or fifth in the conference? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There are more, there are more teams. There are more options when you look at Boston, Toronto, even Charlotte plus Atlanta. That's, yeah. that's a great point. Speefy ass. 
Oh, wow. Question for a future mailbag. Which NBA fan base do you think is the worst? I've been a Suns fan since, <laughs> I, was, since I was five years old, and I don't think any team has fans that are more genuinely hateful towards and unappreciative of their home team than Phoenix. And so this is an interesting question because I think when it's phrased, I actually like the way it's phrased. A lot of people want to know, like, what fan bases do we hate interacting with? But he's, uh, Spiefy's essentially asking, which fan base doesn't love their team enough, right? That's how I interpret it anyway. I, I, I don't know that I have the information to properly answer that question. I think that's that to me, that's one of those where like we can gauge the fan bases that we like interacting with the least, but I, I don't embed myself within these fan base cultures enough to properly answer. Well, that was sort of, that's what I'm saying is like, which team, which fan bases doesn't love their, not is meanest, which fan base do you think doesn't appreciate like their team or is too hard on their team? Phoenix, I don't know if that was the first one that sprang to mind. I think their standards have definitely increased over the past couple of years, but that's natural given where they've been. Like I, that's a look, I given this question some thought. That's tough. So I'm kind of, this is going to be, this might be weird, but I kind of think that it's, um, I don't even want to say this because I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for saying it. Do I say it? Should I say it? I just, I don't have an answer. You don't have maybe that's a cop out. No, I I really just don't because I I think it requires you to have such a working knowledge of how each fan base not just interacts publicly but also privately. Because to me, these aren't like the public facing conversations. It's the the two people who are watching the game and they're saying to each other like how much they hate their team and failing to appreciate it. And I just don't know that we're privy to those conversations. I think it's the Sixers. It might be the Heat. But like with the Sixers, because like that did come to mind because Philadelphia is so notorious about booing its own players. But to me, that also suggests a level of engagement and a level of standards that they expect their players to live up to. And if you don't believe in your team, if you hate your team, those don't exist. Like booing is a sign of passion, is it not? Like you don't boo something if you don't care, because if you don't care, you don't give a shit enough to boo. I was looking at it more from a perspective of overreacting to short-term developments where I do see an element. I haven't always seen it, but there's like a live and die uh, subculture of Phoenix Suns Twitter that I feel like I've seen when stuff goes wrong or right. And it could fluctuate wildly depending on what an outcome of a given game or a couple games is. And I feel that same Zemblance. I felt it from Toronto a little bit, but I do think they just tend to be more optimistic and think that they're overlooked, the fans there. And they're, for the most part, they're probably right. Um, and then Denver is very much like their fan base may not be the biggest because it feels like interest in the Nuggets should be higher, but the ones who are loyal to the Nuggets think they never get enough recognition. Whereas Miami and Philly, I feel very much, and last season, like in Miami, with some of the stuff that Spo was doing, I feel like all of a sudden he was being questioned more or that Bam Adebayo wasn't being aggressive enough because the Heat weren't as dominant in the regular season as they were necessarily the season prior. And this season, it's been more hunky-dory because not that expectations were lower, but they're way deeper than I think anyone thought. And then with the Sixers, outside of Joel Embiid, it doesn't feel like there's a consistent reaction or perspective or opinion of any player on that team. There's maybe Seth Curry probably comes closest. I won't even dive into the Ben Simmons stuff, but like Tobias Harris, has gone. He's he's pariah right now, but he's also been beloved at points when he's not being asked to do too much 
on offense. Uh, I've even seen like the opinions of Matisse Thibel feels like they fluctuate. So I'm not trying to single out a fan base. I do feel like the Heat and the Sixers, though, are the, the two teams that kind of sprang to mind for me. I thought Phoenix, a Suns fan asking this, I thought it was interesting. And I do think what you also kind of alluded to, though, is that success can kind of foment some of this. Yeah, I, I think the other the other potential answer here is the Lakers, just because there is a, a subsection of Lakers fandom that truly is knowledgeable about the team and passionate about the team. But they're probably the organization that has the, the largest amount of, and I hate this word because I truly believe that it is possible to be a good casual basketball fan, but casual in the sense that like, they don't really care. Like there's, they're in it for the celebrity. They're in it for the, the, the status of rooting for the Lakers. So because there's such a tendency to think that every player available in the trade market is always going to go there and that every role player is going to be a superstar and the championships are the expectation every year. I, I think that's a potential answer, but it doesn't encompass the entirety of the fan base because there are good Lakers fans. There are a lot of good Lakers fans. We just, the, the, the bad Lakers fans tend, tend to be amplified in a toxic way. Let's wrap up with these Nuggets questions. And also shout out to Ryan, who had basically the same question as NBA Chicken. I had them highlighted together and then didn't name it. So NBA Chicken and Ryan asked about the East and West playoff standings. Shouts to both of them. We'll start here. Let's see if we can get through these Nuggets ones. We invariably have so many. Um, Do any of these need to be looped together? So a lot of them are Jokic-centric. Surprise, surprise. Shocker. Anthony asks, who's paying talking heads to discount Jokic as MVP. What's your best crackpot theory? I do want to, I don't want to insert myself here because I know that I am not like the peak of national media. I have published two NBA MVP ladders in the past month. Jokic has been at the top. I've also seen him consistently mentioned on Twitter among certain national media members as one of the two or three most likely candidates. I think that's absolutely where he belongs. I don't watch enough sports debate TV. And by watch enough, I don't watch it at all to wonder how they're glossing over him. I have seen like Nick Wright was citing some, like the Nuggets record at one point, and that's things you can't do. But I do push back against the notion that if you think the answer is Giannis, if you think the answer is, I know Steph has fallen off, but he's still been important to Golden State. But like, if you think, let's just, let me use Giannis. Embiid. Yeah, Embiid. If you you think it's Embiid or Giannis uh, instead of Jokic, I don't think that would be called a crackpot theory. I do think, that there was, it did feel like there was more resistance last year to picking Jokic than there should have been. I also think there's more resistance to him this year, but that it's in the grander context of we place way too much fucking stock in team records for this award. And that that's just my read on it. So I wanted to get that out of the way there before you grab the talking Look, stick. Jokic right now is, is per DraftKings is third in MVP odds heading into games on January yeah. 31st. He, he, he's plus 380. Giannis is plus 300 and Embiid is plus 220. What's interesting is Jokic was like 12 to one only a week ago. Yeah. I'm it changes. Saying, that's like, that's a, that's it changes. A it fluctuates. And like everyone has, because there's no like true definition for MVP, everyone is going to have different takes and anyone who's looking for something to complain about can amplify takes that don't agree with their line of thinking. But to me, like the odds are the, the the accumulation of all of that, where this is where people are putting the money. This is where books are setting the money in order to make the money and, and all of that. So like that 
to me is more important than any one national analyst, national pundit who is excluding your favorite player from the conversation. Is Jokic a little bit more discredited? Probably so. Like if he should be the favorite right now, unless team success is a, is a huge impediment, which for some people it's going to be. And why that is like, how long do we have? Because I don't know that there's really a well-defined answer. My, my theory, my crackpot theory here would be that it's just because the media in general ultimately wants to give itself importance. So when you have a player who is not American, who does not play a traditional style, who does not play the style that lends itself to to traditional highlights, because for all of Jokic's passing excellence and creative skilled plays, he's not throwing down thunderous dunks. He's not putting up these these transition coast-to-coast highlights. They're, They're reliant on his ridiculous passing ability because he came out of the second round, because he plays in a Denver market that does again, with the exception of the, the Nuggets diehards, does tend to care way more about football and hockey than basketball. For all of those reasons, it feels like he is still somewhat of an outsider to this discussion of the best player in the world's status, to NBA supremacy, to however you want to phrase it. And I don't know that we've really had a player who checks all of those boxes. You know, we've had non-American players win MVP. We've had second round picks go on to become the best player in the world. We've had players who play non-traditional games get recognition as MVPs. But when all of that is happening together, I think that there is a certain subconscious pushback from media members who are used to their takes being validated by what actually happens and being unwilling to look outside those norms to recognize a talent for what it is. But again, like, I think you can have this conversation about anyone, any given season, because there are so many prominent voices across the NBA media landscape who have differing opinions. If you want to find someone who is championing Jokic right now on a worldwide scale, you can find them. If you want to find someone who's not, you can find them. And the same goes for every player every season, because there is such a wide swath of takes and they don't all align. Because if we... If the NBA came out and said, okay, team success should matter 30% and narrative should matter 20%, then we're going to have we're going to have a more consistent evaluation of MVP. But if you ask like even even between us, we have different ways of thinking about the MVP award because there is no quantification of it and we can attempt to do that. But still, we're applying subjective valuations to different elements of the conversation. And even if we include team success, is that net rating? Is that win-loss record? Is it team success with that player on the court? How much do we hold their teammates against them? How much do their teammates prop them up? Because there aren't defined answers to these questions, of course, there's not going to be consistency. So I get why Nuggets fans feel aggrieved about this, because it has been fairly clear from a statistical perspective that Jokic is playing like the best player in the world and has been for quite some time. I also get why there's pushback to that aggrievedness because there are people who are championing his cause, who are talking about how ridiculously good he is. And that's all that dichotomy is always going to exist. The only thing I'll add, because that was a fantastic Frommel rant. They're like, we need to send him with an F for some, for some alliteration there. Uh, is the other thing is just to that if you're making 
a case for someone who's not Jokic, it turns into you invariably pointing out why Jokic isn't the MVP. And that's how the discussion gets framed a lot is because you have to make a case for others. And I don't think it's always necessary, but I do think the inherent risk is you diminish or it's not even diminish, but you're pointing out the flaws in others' cases while you're making the case for why you've picked who you have. And I don't think that slant is always disingenuous, but but it can be. And if there's a, let's say a common second candidate, which I think Embiid has come up a lot lately, uh, you're going to end up pointing out like why he's more valuable than Jokic to certain people. And that's going to make it seem like Jokic is getting the, the like short shrifted there. I want to shout out friend of the podcast, Brian Toporek here, because he had a great exchange on Twitter uh, this, this uh, January 31st date that we're recording this. Uh, he and Ryan Blackburn, who is a, a Nuggets writer, who is the site manager for Denver Stiffs, uh, Ryan had, had tweeted about his updated MVP ladder and how Jokic was at the top. And, and Brian responded that he is also writing about this and has the same, the same take. So after a back and forth, Brian said, I'm just trying to enjoy both incredible players because he's a Sixers fan referring to Joel Embiid and Jokic instead of only one of them. And to me, like that's where we need to be striving to get as NBA fans, as enjoyers of this sport is not denigrating one player to prop up another because your MVP case for Jokic does not need to mention a single player who is not on the Nuggets. Your MVP case for Joel Embiid, which can be totally valid, does not need to mention a single player who's not on the 76ers. They are both such incredible basketball players, and the same goes for Giannis and whoever else you want to throw into this conversation, that you can and should make those cases appealing only to their merits instead of trying to put down other players to make those points. It is possible to enjoy two rival players in unique ways. We should all strive to do it. So shout out to Brian for actually embodying that practice. This might be, this question is going to risk us diminishing Jokic in some way, but uh, who hardwood brain think, think their name is Mark. Is it too early to ask if Nikola Jokic should be in the conversation for the best big man ever? Yeah, it is. I mean, we're still like, Will Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and it's like Bill Russell, like been exactly because decade, it needs we need to we need to pad that more. Will Will Chamberlain averaged five hundred points a game for an entire season? You know, like the, was it a different era? Yes, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the all-time scoring leader. He maintained his excellence from the time that the Milwaukee Bucks won a title in 1971 and even before that to the Lakers title-winning teams in the late 80s. You know, there there are so many players, Hakeem Olajuwon, David Robinson, Shaquille O'Neal, like the list goes on and on where Jokic's ceiling right now, if you want to talk about whether he's having the best peak for a big man, considering the competitiveness of this era and the rule changes and the style of play changes that have prompted bigs not being as en vogue, then yes, I think you can make a convincing argument. The level at which he's playing right now deserves to be put alongside all of those other bigs in the pantheon of basketball greatness. But we need to see it for a lot longer before we're talking about Nikola Jokic being on the Mount Rushmore of NBA big men. 
the I, I would agree with everything. It is wild that we can at least consider it without it sounding ridiculous because that's how good he is. But I don't know that you can making a case right now would be hard. I think we need to see his peak just and it will be extended, but like we need to get to a point where we can like look back further on his peak, if that makes any sense. It does. Absolutely. Let's loop these two last question uh nuggets questions together since they're kind of the same thing. Kevin asks, what what's a realistic ceiling for the Nuggets this year, assuming Jamal Murray doesn't come back before the playoffs. My additive here would be they were granted an injury exception for Michael Porter Jr. It he's doesn't done. mean that he's out for the year, but it does but it hint does. the fact that he's out for the year. Uh, and then uh, this one came from TJR, asked, after Wednesday in Utah, Denver will have the easiest remaining schedule in the NBA with 19 home games and 12 road games. Is Jokic really going to drag that team to the third seed again? So maybe start with the latter. Where do you think well, I guess they're the same thing. It's like, what is Denver's ceiling as is? No more substantial yeah. additions, including Jamal Murray. Look, right right now, as we're recording this, Denver is five and a half games back of the Memphis Grizzlies for the third game. It is only one game back of the Utah Jazz for the four seed. I don't think that there's enough time left in this season, given the level at which Memphis is playing and the fact that the Grizzlies could continue to get better as these young players get even more time on the court for Denver to match or surpass Memphis. I do think it is eminently possible that Denver ends up hosting a first round playoff series by virtue of having the number four seed. They could win the title. They are, they are in that realm of teams where I don't think that they should be a favorite, but you should not rule out the ability of this team to go on a run that results in the team holding up the Larry O'Brien trophy at the end of the year, especially because that first question presumes that even if Jamal Murray is out for the regular season, he's going to play in the playoffs. And if you get anything out of him, Jokic can single-handedly win a series against just about anyone right now. Like he's pretty darn matchup proof. There is not a single player who has been able to completely neutralize him time and time again. So given how he's playing, this team could beat anyone. So I I don't know that I want to rule out a title ceiling. I don't think it's particularly likely, but I, I I would put Denver in that category with Phoenix, Golden State, Memphis, maybe not even Utah right now. Miami, Chicago, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Brooklyn of teams where like, yeah, if you told me that they were the champion at the end of this season, I wouldn't be totally shocked. My jaw wouldn't hit the floor. I'd be a little surprised, but I think it's realistic. I, they need Jamal Murray back to have that title ceiling. That is I in the same class. Of but again, I, I think the way that question was framed presumes that he is available for the postseason. Uh, if he's not available for the regular season, he's not available for the postseason is how I review it. Because why are you bringing him back at that point? You need to bring him back before the playoffs. need a little ramp-up period. And I do think you brought up a good point about how they're kind of, I don't want to say maxed out, but the regular season ceiling is tough because they've played, you know, you want to look at their home games and whatnot, fine. But, like, they've played about a middle-of-the-road difficulty of schedule now. So they're not actually going to have the easiest schedule when looking at their opponents. So there will be nights where they just feel shorthanded or – are facing really good opponents and just lose. I do think if, if you're going to tell me Jamal Murray comes back, if you can get him 12 to 15 games in the regular season, I will say their ceiling is a title ceiling. If we're assuming he doesn't play for the rest of the year, I think they can win a playoff series. I just think once you get into what teams they would probably be facing in round two, whether it's, you know, is it a Memphis? Is it a Phoenix? Is it a Golden State? Is it a Utah? Because without Jamal Murray, I'm not picking them against Utah. It would be really tough. But that's also a 
incredibly impressive ceiling to have without not just Jamal Murray, but then also your third most important player, Michael Porter Jr. And that speaks to a lot. Denver, their depth has been an issue, but like what Aaron Gordon's been able to do for them. And then Jokic, it says it says more about Jokic than anyone. Who, who the hell are we kidding? But that would be where I'm at. If you tell me Jamal Murray gets any sort of like semi-real regular season sample size, Denver's title ceiling is intact without MPJ. If he's not around at all, as is MPJ is not around at all, I'll give them, they'll win a playoff series. I don't even care about the seeding because like you said, I do think Jokic is good enough to beat pretty much anyone. No, you don't want to go up against Golden State or Phoenix in round one. That would be the, the caveat there. I do want to end here really quickly because we went through a lot of nugget stuff. This is the final question from Salacious B Crunch. And it's also Chigo's question as well because they're both Spurs questions related. Salacious beat crunch asks, what move, what move should the Spurs make before the deadline? White, Derek White feels out of place on the roster with his combination of skills and contracts should make him valuable to teams. Should they be looking to go younger uh, for younger talent and picks or consolidating players into a running mate for Murray? And Achigo's follow-up question to that, I think it was an actual reply, was, is Jajante Murray an all-star caliber player? I'm going to let you take the latter one first. Because, <laughs> yeah, um, no, DeJounte, is, DeJounte Murray is unquestionably an all-star caliber player, whether he gets in, it's a little tougher now that Andrew Wiggins has taken one of the spots in the Western conference. Uh, and that conference ultimately is still pretty deep, but the RPR MVP predictor that we use at NBA math does currently have DeJounte Murray, not just earning a wild card spot, but actually one of the top two guard reserve spots. I think that's partially because Devin Booker and Chris Paul are splitting so many of the big time stats in Phoenix that both of their cases are falling a little bit by the wayside because Luka Doncic's Mavericks fall short in the team success category to this point. So he's climbing a little bit. So I don't think he's a favorite. He probably won't even make the team because of all those more prominent names. And because with that kind of player, we tend to see the all-star recognition come in year two, where year one establishes them at that level. Year two is when the coach is actually validated. Murray is 100% an all-star caliber player. Let's make that perfectly clear. Regardless of whether that accolade is actually attached to his resume by the end of the season, I don't think that changes. I don't expect him to get in, though. And now I'll let you talk about traits. I'm going to add something to Murray. This is more of a hypothetical. If he had a shooting season like Marcus Smart did in 2019-2020, where Marcus Smart shot 40.1% on... 2.5 2.5 pull-up three-point attempts per game. Like 80% in the last second of the shot clock. I don't care. Um, if he, let's just say he shot, maybe this is, if he shot like 37% on two, or 36% on two, on three off-the-dribble three-point attempts per game, where does Jajante Murray rank? As Are we talking about like a top 25, top 20 player at that point because of everything else that he does? I think that number is too high. As in like not as in we're talking like top 15 wild to think about but obviously that's a fairly substantial skill to pick up for trades we did you can check out our youtube clip we talked about what the spurs should do and buy sell or hold that is up i think they should sell and they should be looking to get they're not they don't have a ton of extra first round picks like they have that extra first rounder from chicago and they are sort of the Derek white thing i would keep murray if a consolidation trade presented itself where like if you could get a Ben Simmons without giving up DeJounte Murray I might consider it but how many picks are giving up in that situation I'm firmly in the camp of look at what you could get for if you get anything not only for Thaddeus Young but even a Jakob Pertl even though he's so cheap um is there anyone who wants to take a flyer on Lonnie Walker who's going to be a restricted free agent and I think Derek White has sort of been like the the baseline for a lot of these questions 
I'm not saying I would 100% move him, but the contract here, Derek White seems to be like a subtly divisive player, but him having three more years left on his contract at sub 20 million a year, I think it averages out to like 17. If there's like a situation where a contender will give you no damaging salary and then like two first round picks or the equivalent in prospects, like if Atlanta or Phoenix mm-hmm. was willing to do something, I think I would move him because I don't like him and Murray together long term. And I think that White is better than having someone who you just stagger from your best player. I don't think you're obligated to move. I want to make that clear, but I would absolutely be open to moving Derek White. And also just like, this doesn't have to factor into it, but like having Devin Vassell there, do you like Josh Primo long-term? Like there's a lot of like non, like I'll call them swingmen. Like there, Devin Vassell could definitely be a wing. What is Keldon Johnson? Like, is he, he's like a swingman big. It's, it's just so, so there are enough bodies in like that, that cert, that rotation, that part of the rotation mm-hmm. where I think you could get away with moving Derek White. And he's also on the older end for the timeline that the Spurs are, are at. So he would absolutely be on the table for me. My asking price would be like salary that doesn't hurt me. And then two first round picks or the equivalent in, in prospects. My slightly unrelated follow-up is <laughs> I just, I couldn't help but think about how unfathomable it is that we are recording this 10 days out from the trade deadline, that this is a mailbag episode and that I'm pretty sure that that was the first time Ben Simmons's name was mentioned. Like if anything, if anything indicates how much that situation has spiraled beyond comprehension, there it is. I will say we mentioned Ben Simmons quite a bit on the episodes from last week, but yeah, that is a, uh, that's not this episode though. <laughs> fair enough. And kudos to our listeners for not only asking about trades, we'll have trade content because the deadline's so close, but it was fun to like kind of take, we had some, but it was nice to take a little bit of a break from that. That'll do it for us. Thank you all for your questions. You can always submit them to us. You'll see the tweets out on Twitter. DM me at Danfa Valley, F-A-V-A-L-E. Adam's on Twitter at Frommel09. Follow the podcast at Hardwood Knox. Follow our YouTube channel, youtube.com, Hardwood Knox. Search us, we'll come up. Uh, join our Discord. The link is in the podcast player. We might eventually pump it a little bit more on, on social media, but we want to let the like the, the most loyal listeners in there first. And also for both of us, get a feel for how we're, we're going to use it. We're already having a lot of fun in there. And you get priority mailbag questions at this point. So the, again, the link is in the bio to Hardwood Knox's Discord player. Uh, follow us on Instagram at Harvard underscore Knox. And most importantly, if you've not done so, or if this is your first time listening to us, throw us that permanent subscription wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever at this point. And whether you use iTunes or not, help us juice our ratings or standings in the, in the NBA charts, basketball charts, sports charts, whatever. Throw us a five-star rating, write a review, whatever you want in it. We really super duper incredibly appreciate those. And Adam is raising his hand, so he will say one more thing. Yeah, uh, before we, we turn it back to Dan for the shout out, I just want to let everyone know, like if you've made it this far in the podcast, please consider looking at the expanded sports math network. Uh, me and our technical director at NBA math, Arjun, uh, have been working hard to start launching the overall sports math network website. It is still in progress. It is eventually going to host 
a lot of the stuff that we currently do on NBA math. It's going to have golf stuff. It's going to have hockey stuff. It's going to have baseball stuff. It's going to have football stuff. And of course, basketball stuff. If any of that interests you, go to the NBA math page, go to the sports math network page on Twitter at sports math net, and just look at the different accounts that are circulating there because we are starting to do more stuff and we are going to start to push that a little bit harder. So if you want to be aware of when the actual website is going to launch, you'll want to stay there for all the updates. We are targeting something right around the Super Bowl, which is shockingly close. So it is right around the corner. And with that, I'll turn it back to Dan. As always, the I think it's it's the NBA math handle or the sports math handle or both are always copy and pasted into our uh, into your podcast description. So check that out. That's the easiest way to follow and keep up with everything. Until next time, though, we'll leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, the legend would be unbeatable if he had four clones plus himself on a basketball team, Frank Nielakina.